Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's give our attention tonight to our last reading in the book of Romans. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. You know, I know for many of you, the summer will be filled uh, with a lot of camping experiences. Seems like college students tend to be the first that are called up to help be counselors uh, at various and sundry camps. Uh, Well, I actually got a chance to work at uh, Alpine Camp for Boys uh, back in the early, summer in the early 90s. And um, I was presented that summer uh, with what I would consider to be a true sociological wonderment uh, that at Alpine we refer to as the homesick kid. Now, um, it's very hard for those who've never actually met this person to be able to relate But you need to understand there is no way to console the homesick kid. Um, You know, he watched (laughs) as his parents drove down the dusty road of Alpine away. And from that moment, every single step that he takes at camp is colored for this longing for familiar places, right? Uh, You know, even though, even though the kid is surrounded by kid paradise, for goodness sakes. He can't enjoy a bit of it. Strange. Now, what makes the homesick kid, in my opinion, this sociological wonderment, um, really happens when he finally gets over it. It's fascinating because once he gets over it, he actually starts to enjoy himself. Now, what I find so fascinating about this kid is how instantaneous this moment can be. For those of you that have seen this, you actually know what I'm talking about. Suddenly, everything's different. It all changes. And it's fascinating because it's the same cabin, same bunk, same activities, same counselor. But to his mind, suddenly it's all different, right? Now, what happens there? What's going on with the homesick kid? Well, I remember... My summer that I was there, having an older counselor put it to me this way. He said, look, he said, "Um, the kid's problem, the kid who is homesick, their real fundamental problem is that they really haven't arrived at camp yet. That is, they failed to sort of be all in. They've just not really arrived and been there yet. And camping, you've got to understand, for a small child, a month away from home <laughs> is in many ways a whole life perspective change. And if you try to hold on with even an ounce of nostalgia for your home, for your past, if you will, what happens is you make yourself miserable in the process. Now look... Y'all, chapter 12 of the book of of Romans is the beginning of the second half of the book. It's not the second half in terms of verses, but it's the second half in terms of content, right? The first half is consumed by evaluating our new position in Christ. 
In other words, Paul goes to extraordinary detail. We spent the entire semester talking about it, about what Jesus does in the positional righteousness of his people. We talked about the role of the spirit and the, uh, the, the importance of faith this semester. The second half of the book simply asks the question, so now what? What now? In other words, they start to look and say, what does life look like in this new position? Well, I would like to submit to you tonight that it's very much like camp. That is, the nature of the Christian experience is such that it requires you to be all in. So much so that if you don't see that, you'll fail to understand that by definition, Christianity cannot be done in a half-hearted manner. By definition, it doesn't work that way. We've been looking this semester at, at trying to work our way through why we're so bored with Christianity. And I simply want to pitch to you tonight that one of the reasons why we're bored with it is because we're trying to have a casual relationship with it. That is, we're trying to sort of sequester certain areas of Christianity to the periphery of our lives. And just like that homeschool kid, you, you take no joy whatsoever in Christianity. And therefore, you don't do it very well. For the thing for which you take no joy, you don't do well. We'll return to that in just a second. Look, I simply want to ask you one last question as we wrap up this study in Romans. How do we change this? How can I deal with this boredom and apathy of half-hearted Christianity? Well, Paul gives us three things in these two verses for us to look at. He gives us, first of all, a profound theological truth. He gives us a searching practical application. And then finally, a powerful motivating energy. Okay, first of all, Paul gives us this profound theological truth. This is one of these fun moments here. Because what Paul says is, he says, what I want you to do is to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Look, y'all, I hope, I hope that sounds a little familiar to you. <laughs> that's the language of the book of Leviticus. Now, you got to admit, that's kind of cool. We come now full circle. <laughs> we started last semester in the fall with studying the book of Leviticus, and you wondered what it had to do with anything. And tonight, we suddenly find out why. Paul looks and says that there is in this aspect of Christian service, the idea of living sacrifice. Now, if you'll remember from our study last fall, you'll remember that there were all kinds of different sacrifices. Sacrifices that even if you took it even slightly seriously, you would realize took enormous amounts of time. And honestly, would consume all of your thinking about preparation for it and devotion. I, I even had one of you last fall come up to me after it was over and comment that if you were actually living in that ancient Near Eastern society, that it seemed like you would, all you would have done with all of your time was make sacrifices. And of course, I said to you, that's exactly the point. They were exactly right. Look, for a lot of you, I realized that last fall's discussion was a giant waste of time because you looked and said, Les, that's the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. But wait a minute, not so fast. Because Paul is saying here that the sacrificial system has not been completely abolished. Rather, it's now been retold. 
and re-understood, if you will, around what Jesus has come to do. That's what's happened to the re- to sacrificial system. Because now, and this is the important point, instead of the people of God bringing nice fluffy lambs or these hulking bulls uh, or you know, these spotless goats, the mental image is of Christians everywhere, get this, bringing themselves... In other words, we're no longer bringing little spotless lambs. You know what we're bringing? We're bringing our own bodies to the altar to be burned and to be taken up. Now look, you'll remember we studied that there were a number of different sacrifices in the book of Leviticus that we looked at. One of the sacrifices that was kind of the most popular, got a lot of ink spilled about it, is the sin offering. The sin offering was a sacrifice that required the worshiper to shed blood and therefore ask for forgiveness. Could that be what Paul is talking about? Well, I don't think so, and neither do the commentators. Simply because Jesus has shed his blood and granted to us an eternal forgiveness. So the sin offering is likely not the one to which Paul is referring. But do you remember when we talked about the burnt offering? Or in the Hebrew, the hola offering, from which we get the word holocaust. This offering was very distinctive. Why? Because it was one that God said, I want totally consumed. The interesting thing about the burnt offering was every single bit of it was burned up. The entrails, the meat, the skin, everything about that offering was offered up to God. It was totally consumed. In other words, the point of it was that it was a total offering. That is what I think Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12. He's looking and saying, Christian, in light of what has been done, I want for you to offer everything you've got. Every bit, every aspect, every corner, every nook and cranny of your existence belongs to him. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you don't give God leftovers. Uh, it, It means that Christianity is of a nature that it requires everything. It means that Christians are those who are willing to obey anything that God commands of them in any area of their life. You know, I've gotten to notice something about Christians at Ole Miss, and and I, I probably am included in this particular critique. But it almost seems that whenever someone mentions, someone has a moment where they suggest that devotion to God might actually cause you to, I don't know, stop doing something that you would otherwise naturally do, we instantly offer something like, whoa, 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 now, uh, Let's not get too legalistic about this or anything. You know, suddenly, bam, we're going to play the legalistic card, right? And you're some sort of overpowering person. Okay, granted, the person who says that very well might be being legalistic about it. But shouldn't the instinct of a Christian be different? Paul is saying, I want your instinct to, to look to be this. Wait a minute. God requires something of me? I need to understand that. Look, if you're saying that he requires it for me, it's not an option. (laughs) If I see it clearly expressed in God's word, it doesn't come to me as a suggestion. It comes to me as his absolute will. It only fits that way. Why isn't that our first instinct? Hmm. Look, I've been doing in the spring. Springtime is fun because I get to do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. So much fun. 
Um, but you know, the key to being a good pre-marriage counselor, and I don't necessarily think that I am one, but I've learned over the years that the way to be a good pre-marriage counselor is to watch for the things that one or the other spouse is kind of hesitant about. Um, you know, the, the second that you start to hear things like, um, whoa, 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 what's this business about our money? Um, of course I'm going to have my own checking account. Okay, ding, 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 red flag gets rolled, rolled up there. Um, or someone who looks and goes, well, you know, I'm sorry, but my time out with my friends is my time. Bottom line, <laughs> ding, 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 that's a bad sign. Why? Listen, because marriage is of a nature. Arne and David, listen, do a little pre-work here. Marriage is of a nature that if you try to enter into it while withholding something, you know what it means? It means, first of all, that you won't enjoy it. You'd rob it of its joy. And then secondly, if you persist in that long enough, you actually will you'll, you'll leave it. You won't stay married. You won't see the point in staying married. Look, Paul justifies his request. Look at how he talks there. He justifies his request by looking and saying that this is which is your spiritual worship. Look, y'all, that's actually kind of a confusing translation. If you translate what he says there, uh, literally speaking, what he says is this which is your logical worship. It's just logical. <laughs> In other words, it only makes sense that we would offer everything. One commentator put it this way. He says, this means that to fail to give yourself in complete and total obedience to God is not merely an offense to the moral sense, listen, listen, but it is a crucifixion of your own intelligence. <laughs> it is as stupid as it is wicked. Think, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly to you without giving yourself utterly to him? That's the question. Look, y'all, the theological truth is, Paul says you're to be a living sacrifice. You're to be a burnt offering. And that means every bit of it's going to get consumed. <laughs> to withhold is to invite your own, first of all, draining of joy. And secondly, a temptation to leave it. Point number one. But secondly, Paul then looks and gives us what I think is a very searching application. Um, in many ways, a way of sort of illustrating the truthfulness of the first point. Because Paul clearly says that what is to be offered is your body. That's worth underlining. And I'll tell you a reason why uh, right now. It's clear that Paul is not talking about your soul, the way in which we typically spirit, uh, talk about it. Well, I've offered my spirit to God. Uh, or maybe, like, maybe it's a metaphor for the totality of his being. No, no, no. No, the word there is not metaphorical. What Paul is saying is, what you are to offer to God, listen very carefully, is your physical body. That's where Paul is, Paul is going. That is, that's what's going to the altar of God to be completely consumed. Now look, every commentator that I read on this said the exact same thing. That when Paul says this, a normal sort of Greco-Roman reader who would have been reading this at his time would have been sort of arrested by this idea. Simply because Paul lived in a time where the prevailing philosophy of life was that the body was inherently bad, right? Uh, the real way to true spirituality was through the life of the mind, you know, concentration on the soul. The body was just irrelevant. 
But it was a distinctively Christian contribution to that culture's thinking. To even suggest that the whole person was what God wanted when he was talking about holiness. It's not just your spirit. <laughs> Look, and I'm, to be honest with you, even though we feel like that sort of, oh, that's interesting about those ancient people. No, 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 no. We are the same way. Isn't it interesting that we always talk about asking Jesus into our hearts? But how rarely we talk about asking Jesus into our bodies <laughs> when the same ought to be true. That's what Paul is saying. God is concerned, deeply concerned about your physical body and what you do with your physical body. And I know that this seems obvious to you. But with every passing year, I find that it's actually not quite obvious. What we've done is we have created a Christianity that is fundamentally abstract. Please follow me on this. This one's... I don't know how to illustrate this as well as I want to. For most of us, God is nothing more than an abstraction. He remains in the life of the imagination and in the mind, in the spirit. And don't get me wrong, God is a spirit. Some measure, that's how he resides. But is it not possible that our boredom with Christianity is because we've relegated him to that and he's never made it to our bodies? Look, y'all, God says, I have the right to ask you things of what you do with your body. God is concerned about what you do with your tongue. <laughs> he says, your ability to form and fashion words is a gift that I gave you. And so I command allegiance over your tongue. And you'll speak words that are in, of, of those of encouragement. You'll not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. You'll not let any lying come out of your mouths because your words are mine. That's that part of your body. Guess what? It belongs to me. God is concerned, forgive me, with what you do with your genitals. Your sex life belongs to God. It is an activity that is his creation. He has rights, men and women, over your bodies, over what you are as a sexual creature. And we ought not be shocked by that. God is concerned, I would push even further, with where you take your body. <laughs> it matters to God if you sleep over at your boyfriend's apartment. <laughs> it matters if you sleep in the same bed at a formal. To God, it matters. He's interested in that topic. And it's so interesting how I get the conversation back. I have guys who look at me in the face and say things like, well, I mean, like, what am I going to do? Like, get a whole different room? Yes! Absolutely! I'll be honest with you, 95% of the girls that I talk to look and wish that you'd have done that in the first place. But it seems shocking to people that God would ever, well, what do you mean? He tells me that. Yes! He has rights over that. God is concerned, <clears throat> interestingly enough, with what you put into your body. It shocks us when, we say, when God tells us that we are forbidden to drink so much alcohol <laughs> that we become reckless in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. We're shocked by that. Paul says, though it's part of your body, it belongs to him. It's a whole offering. I think it's interesting that God is concerned, I think, about what you don't put into your body. Ladies, when was the last time you sat down and had a meal when you didn't think about what that meal meant about the next meal you were going to be able to have. You know what I mean? What I'm having here means that I can eat more for dinner. What I'm having here means that I can only have a salad for dinner. 
Look, I'm simply trying to bring you into the realm of reality here. Don't be shocked when God looks and says, it's all mine. Every aspect of what you do with your body belongs to him. He owns my studies. God looks and says that I own your honesty. <laughs> I own the, 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 the pen that you use to copy the paper that you got from somebody else or off the internet. Or, or, or the answers from someone else's lab report that you got that is so clearly cheating by the, anyone's definition. I own that hand, God says. It's all mine. It is the hola offering that Paul commends his people to. Look, can I simply pitch to you before we move on to the last point that to deny this reality is to rob yourself of the joy of Christianity, Paul says. We rob ourselves of its joy. And to be honest with you, if we persist in it long enough, we'll leave God altogether and leave it for the rest of the world and probably ourselves to question whether we ever knew him in the first place at all. Look, y'all, you'll eventually get so bored with Christianity that you'll leave it and you'll never come back. Despite our entertaining the thought that it's just for college. God looks and says, "Mm -mm. it's all mine. Look, okay, so who's up for that? (laughs) We can't ask that question about God demanding everything without coming to our final point. God, because Paul gives for us, and it's very subtly sort of tucked right there in the text, a powerful motivating energy as my third point. Look, it sounds daunting, but Paul will not let it out of his, he won't let it come past his pen without giving us the motivation for how we're supposed to do this. How do we get the power to do this? What does he say to us? He looks and says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies. There's an underlinable piece of scripture. (laughs) By the mercies. Notice it doesn't say by the mercy, because if you read it like that, it would sound like God was, uh, Paul was saying, remember God's attribute of being merciful, which is a good thing, but it's not what he's talking about. He's saying, remember his mercies. That is, remember the acts of grace that he's done in your life, of pulling you up out of the place where you used to be of sort of convicting you of a path that was leading you to certain destruction, of giving you a hope and you didn't think that there was any hope at all. Remember those things. Because what those things will do to you is it will create for you a sacrificial posture, a living sacrificial posture of gratitude to God for the grace that he's given to me. Let me give you two illustrations, and I'll finish this night, of how these things came home to me. Two of my favorite illustrations about this. Uh, Brian Chappell uh, is the president of our denominational uh, uh, seminary and told a story years ago in a sermon I heard him do uh, about a man who came to repair his brand new office door when he became the president of the seminary. He got this fancy new office, but there was a problem with the door. The door stuck. And so he called a man who did some woodworking and had him come over and, uh, you know, he watched as this elderly uh, gentleman sort of pulled the door off its hinges and set it up just right and took out uh, a, a device. I think it's called a planer or a plane. But it's one of those little blocks. It has a little blade on one side that's at an angle. And if you pass it over a bumpy piece of wood, it'll smooth out the piece of wood by creating these little 
these little curly Q things, <laughs> like little curly Q pieces of wood that came out of it. Well, Brian said he was watching this guy do this and kind of looking over his shoulder and just sort of wondered out loud and kind of took him back to his childhood of watching his own father use one of those woodworking tools. And he just kind of said out loud, he's like, isn't that neat? <laughs> he said, the old man looked over his shoulder and said, not what you've been doing it for 35 years, it isn't. Of course, Brian was like, okay, <laughs> sorry. And he said, what was so interesting was, is after the man left and put it back, the door still stuck. It wasn't fixed. And he gave this wonderful principle that I want to set in front of you. Because the work in which you take no joy is very hard to do well. Is it possible that one of the reasons why we are as unholy as we are is because we're still looking at God's demanding a living sacrifice of us as a weighty, heavy yoke of burden. And because it's a task in which we take no joy, we don't do it very well. Look, my friends, you do yourself no service to ignore the overwhelming totality of Christian commitment. But you do yourself positive harm to try to enter it without a motivation of joy, without an eye to the mercies of God. Look, it is my submission to you, and I think it's Paul's red little strength thread of truth going throughout the entire book of Romans, that only the melted heart of joy has the ability to bring about lasting change in your life. Brought my mind back to the end of my own college career. College, as I've mentioned to many of you before, was a less than happy time uh, for me. I was not the happy camper during my um, five years of college. Never mind. <clears throat> well, what, the reason why it was difficult is because I had volunteered for a youth group in my, uh, uh, when I was in Memphis. And I'd worked for a while there. And... Uh, my, my time in this youth group had sort of brought me uh, to the end of my time, and who knows the reason why, I'm sure it was all my fault, to a time of great depression. Uh, I had ended this very long relationship uh, uh, with someone. Uh, I had started looking around me and realized that a lot of the efforts that I had made to try to do something good had kind of fallen down around me. And look, I'll be honest with you, I finished college incredibly disillusioned. And that disillusionment, the way in which it had kind of expressed itself in, in me, is the only way I knew how to put it was with a very hard heart. Um, actually, a couple verses later from the one that we just read tonight in, in Romans 12, Paul tells his people that they're supposed to laugh with those who laugh and weep with those who weep. <laughs> and here's the thing, I couldn't do that. Y'all, I even found myself going to like events that were legitimately sad. And, and I didn't know, this is incredibly embarrassing, I didn't know how to like well up emotion to like make me feel sad for, like, like funerals I'm talking about, to make me feel sad for the other people that were around me and what they were going, going through. Um, now, I've played armchair psychiatrist for about 20 years to figure out what the reason was behind that. But I had, the first time I ever got what I think is the lesson and all that happened when I went to visit a friend. 
And I love getting a chance to talk about my friend, uh, Gwendy Garner. Uh, Gwendy was the mom, uh, uh, an older mom, of a very dear friend of mine who worked with me in the youth group. Um, And Gwendy was one of those ladies who was just unbelievable, kind-hearted, always grinned. She was that dear, sweet lady who would come and just hug your neck in church. I'm convinced for as long as I knew this woman, she prayed for me every single day. I mean, she was, the, she was the older lady who was like, so how are things going with your dating relationship? I mean, have you looked for any other girl? She was into my life in a very beautiful and wonderful way. My beginning of my senior year in college, Gwendy was diagnosed with brain cancer. Um, and we watched sort of uh, uh, Gwendy go through a very gr- grueling year. And I left towards that summer, at the end of that summer uh, of the next year to go away to seminary. And had, you know, obviously, a great experience there. But over the Christmas holiday, I got a call from my friend who said, I think my mom's about to pass away. If you want to come see her, now's the time. I was so nervous going to see her. I was nervous going to see her, partly because I was heartbroken at the thought of losing a friend. But also because I was so stinking self-conscious about that just that hard-hearted attitude that thought, you know, I just don't know how I'm going to react when I see her. Well, by the time that I got there, um, the tumor had grown to a point where it started to take away her motor control. And they had brought a hospital bed into her room, and she was laid out in it. And, you know, by that time, she couldn't say anything. Actually, the only thing she could say was no. That's all she could get out. Um, but, you know, it's funny. In that moment, I, I knew that Gwendy recognized me. And I knew she knew who I was. And she could grab my hand and she grabbed my hand. And, you know, I said what I had to say about, um, about saying goodbye to her. And I got in my car and drove away. She died a week later. And as I was going down the street, I was sitting there and I was so, I was so irritated with myself. I was, once again, it was just that, what in the world is wrong with me? That even something like this wouldn't work on me in that way. And all of a sudden, there was a singular thought that went racing across my mind. And that thought was, you know what? Gwendy loved me. That is a woman who loves me. And all of a sudden, God opened up a fountain of tears. And I pulled the car over on the side of the road and cried for the next half hour. Y'all listen to me. Paul says, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice by the mercies. So that you can look and realize that it is his love that breaks a hard heart. It's joy that changes us into what he wants us to be. Look, have you been stunned by God's grace this semester? Stay there. Think on it. Pray through it. Study it. Come back in the fall. We're going to look at it again. For however many of the years the Lord gives me to be able to do this ministry. Maybe then God might cause us to change. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give us the grace? Would you give us the grace to see you in a different way? For many of us, Lord, when we hear about your, your demands of total commitment, we could spend an evening thinking about our bodies and it's kind of uncomfortable. 
The truth of the matter is we have grown hardened on the inside. And, and, and we don't want to submit anything. And because we're hard on the inside, we haven't found any joy in our sacrifice. So, Lord Jesus, would you do for us what Paul asks for you to do for us, is to keep your mercies right in front of our face. Lord Jesus, is it possible that you could do that enough in our hearts tonight by your spirit that we would walk away saying, oh, Lord Jesus, command me. Tell me what it is that you would have of me because it's all yours. Father, don't stop dealing with this hard-hearted man who tends to want to set your mercies aside. And would you impress them upon these, my friends, and thereby make us a holy people called out from the world to be different. Lord Jesus, would you do that? Only your spirit can do that in us. And so we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.